Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, part one, chapters four through seven. Let's start the show. We finally get back to Susanna, where Mia finally gives birth. Her son turns into a spider creature and devours her. Susanna uses that as a distraction to escape the vampires and low men who've been surrounding her, with the help of a C-3PO-like robot. Meanwhile, Jake and Oi outrun a group of the Crimson King's minions and encounter dinosaurs before being reunited with Susanna on the other side of a magic door. Eddie and Roland are still in Maine, where they bring John Cullum up to speed on their plan, and then return through a magic door. After a brief gun battle with the remaining minions that Susanna and Jake left, the full quartet gets back together. Jay, there was a lot of action in the pages here. Between the birth of Mordred, Susanna's escape, Jake and Oi running away, their gunfights, the encounter with the dinosaurs... Jake's flashback, and then Eddie and Roland's gunfight at the end. There was a lot going on here, and we were really moving the plot along, and I was happy to get everybody back together by the end of this section. Having said that, from a thematic standpoint, I think we struggled a little bit with coming up with some themes. We've got some here that I think are worth discussing, Um, so we're going to probably stay away from a lot of the plot things that I just mentioned and get into some of those thematic issues. And one of the ones that we had discussed was that there is a lot of discussion of fathers in this section. Yes, or as one of the characters might have put it, so many fathers. So many fathers. Um, And we start off with the fact that Mordred has two fathers, and it's actually represented on Mordred's body after he's born. And we get this image of this spider with a face, but then on its back, there's the the human face off the, the spider's head. And he's got the blue bombardier eyes that have so described Roland throughout this entire series. And Susanna's sort of taken aback by it. Mm-hmm. Not the least of which is because there was a giant spider that she basically just gave birth to, if not through her own womb, then through her her connectedness with Mia. Yeah, and Susanna pauses at a critical moment when I think she may have had her only real opportunity to just end Mordred. She's ready to just shoot him, but she's struck by, as you say, the the resemblance to Roland and the eyes especially. But she also has a moment to reflect on, I think the line is, in a world filled with twins and mirror images, Mordred had two fathers. Yes. Two faces to remember. And this is the first time that we're confronted with this idea or even this possibility of multiple fathers. It's sort of a unique situation. Only through the the magic and the fantasy elements of this story are we even able to have this circumstance where a single individual in Mordred can have two fathers. And it seems like he has inherited some sort of genetics from both of them. Right. So... If you kind of transplant that into the mythology and cultural aspects that Roland grew up with, with forgetting the face of your father being 
one of the worst insults or one of the worst things that you could do as a person. Now, Mordred has two fathers, which means there are two faces that he needs to never forget. Right. And which one is he going to be loyal to? Which one is he going to, uh, you know, is this something that is going to be a dilemma or a challenge for Mordred moving forward? The predictions all say, Mordred will be the end of Roland, right? Yes. You know, just like in King Arthur's story. Yeah. And, and so the two fathers, just to make it plainer, the Crimson King and Roland, and they are diametrically opposed. Yes. In, in this story, things. in all things, right? Uh, sort of as we've been talking about how the fate of the universe seems to revolve on on this axle between the the white and the dark and you know the rose on the one hand and the tower i mean we almost get it here as well with roland and the crimson king so as we talked about this so many fathers the other piece that's then reflected at the end of this section that we read the end of part 1 is jake's recollection of his father elmer and by the end of this chapter, when Jake is finally reunited with Roland after all this time apart, he calls Roland his father for the first time um, and asks if he can call him that. And Roland, of course, says yes. Mm -hmm. And this is despite the fact that Jake's still not sure if Roland may possibly <laughs> betray him again. But on the other hand, I think he's gained such a respect for Roland the way that he didn't have for his father. His father was distant and his father really didn't pay much attention to him. Um, Roland does do those things and has raised him and has turned him into the young gunslinger that he is. Yes. But this also means that Jake, in a somewhat similar way as Mordred, has two fathers. Yes. He has his biological father in Elmer, and he has his adoptive father in Roland. And it's very clear that Jake feels a true kinship with Roland in a way that, as you said, he never did with Elmer. But Elmer is his father. I mean, part of what Elmer did, even if it was just varying degrees of neglect and abuse, made Jake who Jake is. Yes. So that was the first part of Jake's life. It wasn't all happiness, and it certainly wasn't a great home life that he had, but that did form Jake into the person that he became. And that contributed to the, you know, the tree with bitter fruit that Roland could see in, in Jake, that if he had continued on that path, if he had lived the rest of his life under the, the watchful eye of and neglectful upbringing of Elmer um, and lived the rest of his life in New York, I think Jake would have turned into a pretty terrible person. But because of Roland's influence, Jake is not a terrible person. Jake's probably one of the greatest characters in terms of character and honor and uh, like he, he doesn't want to hurt people. He doesn't want to betray people. He's honest and true in a way that Roland has not been, you know, I mean, Roland is honest, but. But Roland has no problems in killing people if necessary without yeah. a second thought. He has no problems in betraying people if they get in his way to his destination which is the tower his mission right but in a, in a lot of ways jake rises above roland in that regard and that as in character he's better than his adoptive father yep. or his surrogate father i think that might be one of the reasons why roland loves him as he does because he sees like you're a better person than i am you know i look up to you because of that yeah even though i'm faster with the guns and you know 
where it really counts, uh, you're the one who who's the better person. And I know we don't do a lot of speculation on this show, especially since you know what the outcome is and I don't. But when we're reading the book in sections like this, and it's very clear at the beginning of the section that Mordred has two fathers and his mission in life is to kill one of them, that being Roland. And then we have at the end of this short section, somebody else in Jake who has two fathers. And we wonder, is his mission going to be to kill one of them being Roland? Or is his the opposite in which he's going to save Roland in some way? I don't know. And I'm sure that's all moderately interesting. But it just struck me being that close together, how Mordred and Jake are connected and how their stories may or may not parallel. Yes. Moderately fascinating. Yes. So we can't talk about fathers without mentioning Fada Callahan, um, who, of course, is still dead. Aww. But Jake <laughs> reflects on it because this is really his first time, or this is our first time seeing Jake after Father Callahan's death. And he knows that he is dead despite he wasn't there to actually see it. He just saw sort of the fact that he had to run and the low men were, were on top of him, the vampires. And for him, Jake feels a great loss, um, even though they didn't know each other for very long they did have a connection. And for him, it is another loss, you know, so quickly after Benny Sleitman, um, it, it impacts Jake and he breaks down and cries at one point during their escape. Mm -hmm. And Oi looks back to him like, come on, we gotta get going. We gotta get <laughs> yeah. going. And Jake's now like, is not yeah. a good time. Jake's like, give me a minute. I'm a little overclumped. Now Roland and Eddie, on the other hand, they also feel the loss of Callahan, but they approach it in a much different way, which is we're going to kill you and anybody who was responsible for the death of it. And so we get that gunfight at the end when Roland is very calm about it. You know, we get another... Yeah, like Roland very calmly discusses killing those who attacked Callahan and Jake. And he does this moments after being, you know, almost... Like we've sort of gotten used to Roland being the fish out of water and being in some ways, Eddie's sidekick as they've spent time in Maine, they've interacted with Stephen King, they've interacted with John Cullum, and Roland has sort of just been going along with everything that's been happening to him. But they had that brief moment where they got to see what's going on, and they had that, that you know, psychic connection with Callahan and Jake in that critical moment at the end of Callahan's life, just before Callahan died. Right. And so they know exactly what happened and they know exactly how it went down and they know exactly who's responsible. And Roland didn't forget that. When it's time for them to choose when and where they cross back over, they don't go to where Jake is. They go to where the people are who are responsible for attacking Jake and who are responsible for killing Father Callahan. Yep. And in that moment, Eddie says, you could barely look at Roland. There was something in his facial expression. He became a hard ass again. You know, all this time, Roland's just been like, yeah, come on. Yeah, let's go do these things. But yeah, yeah. Now let's go kill some people. Yep. Yep. Let's hurt the people who hurt our friends. And again, with the parallels, when that happens, uh, the, the last man tries to surrender to Roland and Roland's having none of it. And even though he's trying to surrender, he shoots him dead. And in the chapter four of this section, the same thing happens with Susanna. Uh, Sayer tries to beg for his life, and Susanna's having none of it, and shoots him dead. So we have two members of the quartet who are willing to, 
you know, basically shoot somebody in cold blood who's willing to put down their arms and say, enough, I, I beg forgiveness. And they're like, nope. Yeah. This seems like the gunslinger training. And in the circumstance, I think it's the right thing to do. Oh, yeah. You can't just let folks go and not and have them at your back at this point. Um, but but it, does... it does tell you something about their characters. And, yeah. you, and, and I wonder if Jake and Eddie would be willing to do that. Um, to your point, you just said it, it was hard for Eddie to look at Roland when he's like this. Yeah. And I he wonder- saw, He and, saw death in Roland's eyes. Yes. And when when we've talked about Jake, we wonder if Jake would be the same way to shoot, kill somebody in cold blood like that. So I just thought it was interesting that in addition to that father's parallel, there was also this parallel of the, of the shootings there. Mm. As you mentioned a little while ago- the group is now back together. The quartet is no longer broken. Yeah, I mean, they have not been together since the end of book five, um, when they were preparing the trap for the wolves of the Kala. Um, right. That was the last time that everyone was together with the with the celebration, and it was actually during the celebration when Susanna skipped off. Most of book six was Roland and Eddie and separated from Jake and Father Callahan. So this is the first time we've had our core quartet together. And the fact that King calls it the core quartet is back together. You make me like, oh, okay. So Callahan was part of the quartet, but he's not really the core there. So he was sort of peripheral. Yeah. He was like he was like the crunchy fruit around the core, but he wasn't the core. Yeah. He was important, but not there. And I also wondered if King, as he tends to do, starts to foreshadow or slash undercut his story because he's I think the actual line is, for yet a little while longer, the core of Roland's quartet remained unbroken. So while they are mm -hmm. back together, it seems like they might not be all together in the near future. Um, and we're reminded of that line that came earlier when Eddie and Roland said, had an exchange of a question that came up and they said, well, there would be death between them before that question was answered. So I was like, oh, this doesn't seem good for something. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it was nice to see everyone back together and get those interactions. Uh, we get Susanna and Jake with some nice interactions. You know, obviously when Eddie and Susanna see each other for the first time after being separated for so much, so long and not, and worry they weren't going to see each other, it almost seemed as if things were going to get a little, uh, risque in front of Roland and Jake there for a little bit <laughs> as, as Eddie cups her breasts and, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about how much they love each other, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone's happy to see each other. I'm always happy to see everybody. And I'm sure everything's going to be fine moving forward. So it's nice yeah. to have the quartet back together. And speaking of Oi, this section gives us Oi's point of view. Yeah. Like, which I think is fascinating, but it's also sort of unexpected. I mean, Oi has always been in terms of just being a Billy Bumbler, which is a, you know, a fantasy animal, King can give him any attributes he wishes. So he can kind of talk, he can kind of be more intelligent than you would expect an animal like that to be. And that makes Oi interesting. And that makes Oi a closer member of the family than just like the family dog. But here we actually go inside Oi's mind. Yeah. And we hear and we read Oi's thoughts. And Oi's thoughts are far more intricate than we've been led to believe. Yeah. And I think that I think it's wonderful. Uh it it does it I think it further elevates Oi as truly a member of the Cotet. He's not Jake's pet. He is part of their circle. And he is apparently psychically linked to them in just the way they're all linked to each other, which is why Jake has always been able to sort of 
understand what Oi wants and why Oi seems tame, but Oi's not tame. Uh. He's just mentally connected to Jake <laughs> in a way that like a pet dog never would be. And um, so here we have Oi is like looking at Jake and thinking things like, why are you stopping? And <laughs> this is not a good time to cry. I'm sad about Callahan too, but seriously, they're chasing us, yeah. you know? To your point about Oi not being tame, there's a great Whelan illustration of Jake's stand at the door when he's got the uh, Ariza's out and mm-hmm. and there's Oi at the bottom and he's snarling and he looks like a rabid raccoon or coyote or or dog mm-hmm. of some sort and you can tell that he is definitely not a tame creature he may be when jake is around but not otherwise yeah and roland has done a good job of reminding us almost constantly that anytime oi does something that is unusual that appears that gives him the appearance of being tame roland will almost always think to himself or just say out loud to some other character I would never expect a bumbler to do that. <laughs> yeah. I would. N- I have never heard of a bumbler doing that. Like, I can't believe you got him to just like do whatever that just happened. Right. And it's not because Jake trained him. It's because Jake is connected to him through this psychic link. Yeah, and it's more than a psychic link like Susanna and Roland and Eddie and Jake have, where they're they've been able to send messages to each other and sort of understand whether they're in danger or still alive or things like that. Jake and Oi actually go freaky Friday on us and exchange yeah. and exchange bodies. And uh, I would love to see that uh, two hour sitcom sometime or <laughs> <laughs> they, they both pee against the same fire hydrant and the lightning strikes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's how they're able to get through the images of the dinosaur that are Jake's worst fear. Uh, yeah, in the mind trap, right? Yeah. The mind trap, which, you know, to be totally truthful with you, seem like fairly common science fiction. You have to face your worst fears. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be one of these situations where you have to do that. I think I've seen that in any number of TV or fantasy shows, you know, but there's this interesting turnaround where how they get out of it is they actually change minds and Jake's inside Oi and Oi's inside Jake and Oi's like, whoa, this body with the bipedal nature is very odd. I can barely keep my balance. How do they do this? And one of the most fascinating things that King explores, he only spends enough time to just tease the idea, uh, which I appreciate because in the moment we don't have time for it. But when Oi is inside Jake's body, it seems like he has access to the machinery of Jake's mind Mm. and he can perceive it as a, as a physical space. And he sees like the more intricate parts of the human mind, the thing that, that makes us who we are as this, you know, gleaming chrome polished metal and like just, but to Oi, it's fascinating and he's entranced by it and he wishes he could go exploring it. But he also has this instinctive notion that if he were to go into that part of Jake's mind, if he were to pursue and explore there, he would never come out. Right. He, that's he can't he can't grasp it. It's just too much for him. Yeah. Which is an interesting instinct that he would like simultaneously be drawn to it and also know it's doom to go through. Right. Yeah. His his mind would actually be blown. He'd have gal yeah. he'd have galaxy brain to the extreme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And of course I, I I can't finish talking about Oi and Oi's POV without undercutting a little bit of King King's efforts here, I should say. And uh, we've spent so much time with Oi here, 
I feel like we've spent more time with Oi than we have with Susanna. At, <laughs> at and, least at this junction in the book, that is true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like has has Oi gotten more lines, more screen time, if you will, than than Susanna has. Uh, you know, I could see like if it was Shatner and Nimoy. <laughs> I think Shatner would be pretty pissed at this point because <laughs> yeah. Nimoy got more lines. <laughs> Suzanne is re- reminded of the old Hollywood uh, maxim: "Never work with children or pets." Right? Yeah. <laughs> she's got especially she's got Billy Bumble. She's got two of them in this quartet. Damn it! <laughs> Jake and Oi yeah. stealing all the screen time. Uh, so King also explores another interesting fantasy aspect, and that is these magic doors that are throughout the underground area of the Dixie Pig. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of them, ins and outs to different parts of New York City, and more importantly, different times to New York City. And we learn this at first when Susanna needs to figure out how to escape, and the C-3PO type robot Nigel tells her, well, of course, madam, there are doors all over, and the door that you wish to has been broken, but there is another sub-door over here, and that's the one that you might want to go through. And he's able to lead her through it despite being blinded by her gunshots, because he has another way of seeing, so. Yeah. Which seems almost as good and readily available. Yeah, so why get freaked out when you can't see the first way? But that's a separate rant entirely. Anyhow, there there's all these doors that seem to be used not only for travel, but is it tourism, Jay? It seems like tourism. I mean, there are like flyers and posters and things telling the, I guess, the travelers through these doors what they'll see when they go through. Or where they'll be and when they'll be. And at one point, one of the characters, the 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 human with the Boston accent who's chasing Jake. Yeah. He's kind of just mentally doing an inventory as he's pursuing Jake through the tunnels. Like, what about this door and that door? And we get the sense that there are not just a couple of doors, there are like seemingly dozens or even a hundred or more doors. Some of them don't work anymore, but there are still a lot that do. And it seems that these servants of the Crimson King have access to all of them. Mm. They're using them all the time. Yeah. And they're, they're just like, it's like riding the subway for them. They just get all around all the different worlds and all these different times and, and places through these doors at, all the time. And this is one of the other few things that I think what the movie adaptation kind of got right. Because they had this notion of like, you could just walk up to one of those doors and punch in a code. And it would take you to the place and, and time that you wanted to go. Right. And I'm still not totally down with their execution of it, but they came pretty close to what's going on here. And it's a nice echo there that I, I see what they were trying to do in the movie. And I'll give them credit for that much at least. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, just expanding on this tourism idea, it seems that before the Crimson King and his goons took over... For a long time, perhaps the great old ones, the ones who made the doors, um, they used them simply for tourism's sake. Instead of buying a plane ticket, you just went up to a door and you could go and watch some famous concert that happened or something, you know? Right. But we get hints, though, that most of these things are more macabre than that. There's one that links directly to JFK's assassination. There's one that links directly to the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11. These are not happy times. No. But clearly, there were people who wanted to just be there and watch it happen. And if you could step through a door and witness it, and then go back through the door and go back to your happy-go-lucky life, 
I guess there's a market for that. Yeah, unless you had asthma or any other sort of respiratory problem, then yeah. you're, you're you're warned about going to do the, through the 911 door because that might not be good for your health. Yeah, it's like such a dark and macabre thing to do, but it's like, oh, but it, for health reasons, be careful. Yeah, exactly. No one goes through the door and prevents the the uh, the atrocity. No one says, "Oh, I'll take this door and warn people." They're just going to go there, but they'll bring their inhalers and you know dust masks just in case. Right. And we've talked before about how King's eleven twenty two sixty three seems to have been sort of worked out and pitched a little bit in this series. There's that whole section earlier on in one of the books where. There's sort of the whole idea of, hey, what would happen if you could go through a door and fix it? And then we actually see a door here. And I'd be interested, mm -hmm. once I finish the Dark Tower series, to go back and look at the 112263 book with a fresh set of eyes to see how related that book is to the Dark Tower. I don't know if you have any recollection. I remember that it was very much related to it. But yes. um, as far as the Dark Tower stuff, is it just that... What was pitched in the Dark Tower is in eleven twenty two sixty three, or can we take more out of that book based on what's in the Dark Tower series? Yeah, I don't remember anything that that directly connected to it. Yeah, but I bet I bet King wove in a few extra things, maybe some Nazala cola or something like that. Yeah, that might be a uh, podcast for another day. Yes, but speaking of the eleven twenty two sixty three, I think that. This notion of using these magic doors, or I guess some of them are magic and some of them are not, but using these doors for a tourism purpose is really cool. And I really liked it because of the 112263 connection. But I also thought it was a little lame that King included November on the label for that door. All the other doors that Jake reads and Susanna reads as they're passing through the, the space and it's it's either so vague that it's not clear what it's supposed to take us to, or it's too specific. And I think King could have done a maybe a better job of letting the reader do that work, or make or letting the reader be, uh, you know, having enough pop culture awareness to make the connection that 1963 Texas or something like that, or Dallas or, or whatever. Yeah. Like just. Give us the same amount of information for all the doors. Right. As, as, and he gave us way too much for that one. So it's like, he might as well have just said, see, JFK get assassinated. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so it just, it sort of, it took away a little bit of the magic of, of figuring that out myself. Well, it's time to get into fun stuff, Jay. And I actually have something that's directly related to what you just said. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what movie was the one that Jake was watching that that brings him, you know, that he relates to his worst fear. And on that oh, with one, the animated dinosaurs? Yeah. Like it it wasn't a movie I've ever seen, The Lost Continent, um, which mm. I think is what it is. So, so it, I did not figure that out. So he was very I don't know if, if subtle the subtle the word, but he's picked out a pop culture reference and didn't give us so many hints that didn't he say the name? Well he did eventually, but but it oh, took okay. a little bit to get there. Got you know, it. he, it's not like it's not like what you're saying with the November twenty two sixty three when it was like right in front of you, November Dallas sixty three, and you're like, okay, I get it, I know exactly what it is. Uh, he was he was more subtle, but the one that I picked up right away and I didn't know if it was supposed to be more hidden than it was was the Weemaway 
that's the message yeah. that's the message that Jake sends to Susanna and Susanna's like Wimaway what the heck's that mean um and I was like uh it's probably in the jungle reference isn't it and sure enough it was so sometimes sometimes king can be subtle and sometimes you can't and uh or maybe sometimes I'm smart enough to figure it out and sometimes I'm just not yeah <laughs> maybe that's it a little column a little column b so um I like the uh, Robert Goulet reference. I'll always <laughs> just think Robert Goulet is hilarious ever since the Saturday Night Live skit. Of course. Goulet. <laughs> nice. And as you and I are big Weird Al fans, the Don Pardo reference was one, of course, that we love as well from yes, absolutely from Weird Al's uh, I Lost on Jeopardy. I was unaware, though, that Don Pardo was an early announcer for The Price is Right pre-Bob Barker. So I had to do a little research on that. To, I, I was positive the King got his facts right, but I did a little Wikipedia researching to make sure. I'm like, oh, this is interesting about Don Pardo. Well, even if King had it wrong, he could have just said it was an alternate Earth. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it's the one where co-op cities in the Bronx instead of <laughs> yeah. uh, instead of Brooklyn or the other way around. I really liked how King described John Cullum wearing his Red Sox cap tilted just a little to one side, as if to say, "I got the drop on you, partner." <laughs> yeah, I like that. Like just enough <laughs> tilt in his cap for an attitude, and that's. I think that's how. People who can just so easily pull off a little bit of style and panache in how they wear a hat, they get that the <laughs> tilt of their hat just so like it just it comes to them effortlessly. And then there are people like me who just you know my hat's always on like straight, straight up and down. <laughs> so I don't think I got the drop on anybody. No, but John Cullum, on the other hand, he's got that panache. I might pay good money for an HBO limited series on the adventures of John Cullum in the business world as he puts together the the Tet Corporation and the oh, mach- yeah. and the machinations of that because there's a lot of hints in this section about you know how he had to you know balance some some bad things that he may have done as he looked back on his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to prevent the Crimson King from taking over and how his corporation and the Crimson King's corporation fought over land deals and other things. Like, I think that that could be a fairly interesting story, which I'm sure we're not going to get in this book, but, uh, you know. I mean, it's just like everybody that comes across Roland. He ends up finding these good people who have a lot of talent and a lot of smarts, and they end up having to do some things that are like compromising to their character, compromising to being a good person in the effort to protect the greater good, in the effort to achieve the greater goal. And John Cullum is no different. Yeah. He's he is given this grand mission to protect the probably the single most important thing in the world and he does so successfully from that sort of like, you know, 6 feet uh I was going to give a spoiler to a show that 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 ended 15 years ago yeah anyway like we we sort of get those those hints at what comes to john column in the future yeah without a lot of really minute detail so it seems that he is successful in these efforts and we know that at least as far as 1999 when Susanna's in new york the tech corporation is going strong and they've built a building to protect the roads yes they have this massive presence and all this money so we know john column has done something he's accomplished what he needed to accomplish but yeah as you said he's 
there's enough in there too to see that he has some kind of regrets for some of the really <laughs> down low things that he's done. But as he says in uh, another thing that I save for fun stuff is that I never been to Harvard Business School, but I guess I can kick a fella in the crotch as well as anyone. <laughs> you know, like, like I love that. I mean, yeah. it just like, like that's he's sort of like he's he's a down home guy, you know, from a rural part of Maine. But he's smart and he's capable and he's willing to work hard and he's willing to bend the rules, you know, to get things done. Like I said, HBO option this. I will watch yeah. this. I will watch this show. It's certainly got to be better than the Dark Tower movie. Yeah, he'll be like <laughs> he'll be like the CEO sitting on the top floor of the Tet Corporation building wearing his Red Sox cap tilted just a little to one side. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. So we get a couple of potentially obvious pop culture references. We get the uh, Nigel seems to very much be a C-3PO type character. And we get sort of the opposite of Empire Strikes Back where Chewbacca is carrying around a uh, a legless C-3PO in, in the cloud city of Bespin. In this book, we get the robot Nigel carrying around a legless Susanna through the depths of the Dixie Pig as they try to find a, a way out. So, um, and then also this might be just King not knowing a lot about guns, but the one gun that gets mentioned in detail is the Walther PPK, which whenever I hear, I of course think of James Bond, his mm. gun of choice, despite That's the fact right. that Q thinks that it'll jam it in a, inopportune times. Bond insists on it. Oh, so Q did not give Bond that gun. I think he he. I think in the books he doesn't approve of Bond carrying that gun. So. You'll have to turn you'll have to tune into my James Bond podcast as we go through all of the James Bond books at some point. Uh, I'm only a James Bond movie enthusiast, so that could be an interesting podcast, perhaps uh <laughs> we, our next we, show. We would, we would reverse roles there. Yeah. Um another thing I had for fun stuff is that Roland really likes the word hard ass. <laughs> Who does it? it? Just, <laughs> yeah. But but it's like one of those colloquialisms that he wouldn't know and as he learned it. You know, through talking to Eddie and John Cullum, yeah, it's like, yeah, hard ass. I like this word. It describes me. Yeah, I get yeah. it. It's me. It's me. I'm a hard ass. <laughs> Perfect. Finally, Jake is, as he's going through the Dixie Pig, he ends up in a kitchen and there's like a dishwasher kid there. And mm -hmm. the dishwasher kid sort of freaked out and not sure what to do because there's this little kid here with the guns and then there's little men and vampires on the other side with guns and he's sort of caught in the middle. And Jake wants him to leave and get out and save himself. And his pitch to this kid is, go out there. There's this whole world out there and there's video games. Why don't you go play video games? And I was trying to figure out, what does Jake really know about video games? He's a kid of the early 70s. Um, he left his world in 77. And I don't think there were many, if at all, any video games at that point. You know, Pac-Man, I think, is 1980. I think there was Pong in the early 70s and Space Invaders in the late 70s. But I think 77, video games wouldn't be so ubiquitous that that would be what you would sort of send yeah. a kid on. Jake wouldn't have that video game cultural reference in the same way that Eddie. someone might today or Eddie, Eddie or even might, Eddie. Yeah. The, the video game arcade that everybody came to know as a place to go play video games, I don't think that existed yet. No. Not, not for Jake in 77. And the home video game systems Definitely didn't really not. exist either. Yeah. I think those took until at least like 83 or 84 for some of those 
early like Pong systems that you could get at home. Yeah. Jake so. might have been better off referring to pinball rather than uh than video yeah. games. But hey, we'll get we'll we'll forgive King on this. It ultimately doesn't make a difference. It was just something fun and interesting I noticed. Yeah, he could have said, go out there. There's ski ball. You can get tickets and cash them in for cheap prizes. There's a claw. The claw will pick things up and drop it. You can get stuffed animals and other plush toys. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at Two Guys Dark Tower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Two Guys Dark Tower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Two Guys Dark Tower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 4. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Yes. Yes. <laughs>